Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome to Outcasts with me, Powder Monkey, Tim Downey and Cabin Boy, David Perry. This is the show that sets sail on the good ship Outlander for lands unknown and treasures unequaled, guided only by the heavenly bodies glittering in the inky firmament above us. And what a heavenly body we have for you today. Director and all-round good egg has worked on such productions as Poldark, Harry Potter, The Halcyon, to name but a few. And of course, Outlander, he is... The brilliant Stephen Wolfenden. Stephen, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. I'm glad you could uh, grace our grace our decks as we sail off into the Outlander trip of the unknown. Tim, no one understands what you're saying right now. I need a translation. Isn't it? It's good though. It is very good. I wanted to paint a glorious picture that nobody understood. You did, but people felt that they did. That was my onus. I felt on that. You succeeded marvelously. Thank you. Marvelously. <laughs> Wonderful. Good. Well, as is always with our show, we are going to pick a show where our guest has picked a scene for us. It's a very good scene. I'm very excited by this scene because this was a scene I can remember seeing going, this is a fun scene. This is a scene I would have liked to have been a part of and it's from episode one. A tiny bit of background before we leap in is this is the drunk scene. This is the drinking game scene. Is that right? It's the drinking game scene uh, sort of in the middle of the wedding, the wedding night's festivities. Yes. Fabulous, fabulous. Now, you, before we leap in, we usually uh, like to align parts, see who would like to read what. So I think we'd say that I will give you my uh, my JQM, I like a nice sort of heavy Welsh. So that's always going to be fun to hear. And I may, in fact, I think we said I may even do a little bit of Lord John Gray, just to really mix that up and to show you my range. You insisted upon that, Tim. Let's be honest now. I don't think people need to peek behind the curtain this early, David. I think we just need to just focus... I think they should know how it came about. Threats of death. <laughs> I strong arm my way into this, Stephen. I said, I'm doing it. <laughs> much like, you know, much like I would. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I will take uh, John Quincy and uh, and John Gray. Mr. David Berry will give us, I think we're saying his Fergus. Did we say that? Yeah, I'm going to give you Fergus and I'm going to give you Marsley. Fantastic. But this is up for discussion because I would really like to ask Stephen if there's any character... Even Lord John Gray, that you would like to play. I will happily give that opportunity to you. I understand at one point you had ambitions of being an actor. This could be your big opportunity here. So I'll open the floor to you, Stephen. Well, I'd, I'd love to give, give the Morton line a go. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> it's yours. Very modest. Very modest. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm told that one of the training exercises for getting your Scottish accent. There's a key phrase. Now, there's something about Kawasaki, uh, I think. There is. That's for when you're doing Newcastle. It's Newcastle, Kawasaki. Right. And, it, and it's right. your buzzword to get in, yeah. And so uh, 
and I heard that on a on a show that you'd done, and I thought that there was a a phrase. There's been a murder in Aberdeen is a really good way of getting into a Scottish accent, which is, there's been a murder in Aberdeen. Wow, chilling, chilling. Yes, I think that's the word for me. Is that the Scots say murder in a totally unique way? That's the word. To get in i'm looking out for that now richard used to tell me and it would amuse me immensely that well he'd string a bunch of words together let me see if i can do this purple burglar alarm did i say do you understand anything of what i just said no something about a burglar alarm yeah purple burglar alarm purple <laughs> burglar alarm. yeah apparently if you string those words together you'll sound really scottish so we, we could go there's been a murder in aberdeen and it set off the purple burglar alarm amazing Perfect. And you're in and we are running and sound and action. I think that's it. That's, it. that's, how, that's how we find this. Well, Tim, should we also give Stephen the, the benefit of uh, reading the big print, seeing as he is the director? Yes, 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 yes. We absolutely should. I would feel very strange if he wasn't directing me in some way, whether through big print or just his direction. And if you do, Stephen, at any point want to jump in and direct me, Tim, I want to speak for you, but if you want to direct me, uh, Stephen, I'm more than happy to it. I would love nothing more. So, yes, anytime you want to leap in, please feel free. But I think first off is when you first see a scene like this, Stephen, do you approach this by going, oh, God, this is going to take forever? Or is this a scene you get excited by? Would you look at this and go, oh, this is, yes, okay, I know exactly how I'm going to do this. I know how I'm going to approach this. Um, this. This is a scene that jumped off the page and you thought, oh, this is a bit of a gift because you know the cast involved, you know the characters involved, um, and you know that there'll be a, a certain amount of energy to harness, to encourage, to to grab hold of. Um, and so it was one I was really, really looking forward to. And strangely, it happened on the last night of our wedding shoot so it was virtually the last thing that we did it was on the 24th of april 2019 mm -hmm. um and we were filming until 3 30 in the morning so and we'd been doing the wedding for about seven days and nights we were on split days we'd been going to bed at five six o'clock in the morning the nights before and we had to get out of there by 3 30 in the morning so we only had a certain amount of uh, night time to do it. Um, and this session would have taken about three and a half hours. Um, but it, it jumps off the page. All the characters are having fun. And my role is to encourage that energy and, and also to find the energy of the background. One of the big things with scenes like this is whatever cast you've got doing the most wonderful things if the background mm. if the you know supporting artists are not uh, connected to the scene connected to the characters uh, if they don't understand what's going on then it can fall really flat so i'm, I'm a big one I, I the director has to be a chameleon of, of many different characters and uh you have to sort of step out of your comfort zone and really become a, a ringmaster with the first assistant director. But you have to really, you know, there's 140 people in costume on that, you know, on that on that night, mm. uh, and you have to harness harness that uh, that energy. And how much rehearsal do you have for a scene like this? Well, uh, this is the ongoing battle of of the the schedule and what 
you can actually physically achieve for rehearsal. But I would say we probably had with the cast on set about 20 minutes to half an hour tops rehearsing and then to do that to do that whole scene and do the whole scene uh, and then just talk about how we're going to shoot it and then we would be bringing all the supporting artists on and then we'd be we'd be shooting within the hour of first rehearsing definitely if not you will never make a schedule like this that's absolutely true. I was there. I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do remember that we did have an additional rehearsal just after the read-through. It's something that you very seldom get on Outlander. And I was very happy that you called for that. A lot of directors don't always do that. But you know the medal of a director when they do ask for that because you know that they've probably had to insist upon it or request it, especially in this schedule. It's very hectic. So we had a good idea of what we were getting ourselves into before we had that very limited time on that set on that evening yeah it's that's a rare that's a rare play that you can make and it just so happened that after the read through all the people were in the right place and and it I'd come from Australia just to do the rehearsal. Yeah. How committed I am. (laughs) Without that rehearsal after the read-through, it would have cost us another half an hour on the night. We wouldn't have got half the coverage. We wouldn't have got lots of other little montage bits that we also shot that night. So, yes, yeah, it was a good memory as well because it also – you know, helped create the company vibe before we actually got on set. I'm so pleased you said that, Stephen, mm. about the uh, montage bits, because mm. one of those scenes that I think a lot of people mentioned to me that was not scripted was the one where John Quincy Myers and Lord John and uh, who else is on that log? It was um, uh, John Tarsi. Yes. Yeah. That was your brainchild. That was like, how about we get a, a scene with the three of you and John's at the fire. I remember that being impromptu and we, having the opportunity to do that may not have happened did we not have the rehearsal for this particular scene? Am I correct in thinking that? Uh, absolutely. And and I, I think, uh, you know, there's so much um, time you can make for yourself in pre-production with a, a good sort of set of... Uh, What's the what I wrote down the seven P's. I wrote down the seven P's, which are a famous P's. the seven P's in 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 the military world are uh, ooh, the, the five P's or proper planning and preparation. Proper planning and preparation prevents piss poor performance. Yes. Um, and but yeah. By getting yourself, grabbing any time you can with the cast to rehearse in advance buys you time further down the line. It also Mm. sets people at ease. It also sets their uh, minds working. And then they come back to the set on the night with even more better ideas and Mm. more excitement about what they've got to achieve. Um, And the the little montage bit was uh, in the script. There were a series of very sort of uh, nebulous, non-specific establishes and little montage moments. And I said to Patrick, First AD, and Matt Roberts, the showrunner, I said, if we can get any characters in these, I want to just grab, keep hold of people and grab 
the people that we know. If we see the people we know having fun, it's going to make more sense to people. And mm. and the whole John Quincy Myers thing just happened. It was it was three twenty eight in the morning. I think we did two takes. Right. You cracked up. You cracked up on take one, going really. And then you laughed, and then you, you went, you yeah, know, this is funny. And then second time you went down. I remember it was raining, and uh, it was. And you said, "We don't even know if we can get this shot. Look, can we just go for it?" You put the camera on a slider, uh, on a track, and then we did it. And it may never have happened, but it, you got that moment of gold that really sung in that episode, and uh, really got the attention of people. Got a very great response, and that these are the things that you know we can talk about later. But thinking on the fly and being able to be adaptable is probably one mm. of the really great assets of probably not in those peas that you were talking about pedactable or pinking on the fly <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's probably something that you need as a director so here we are we are scene 12 uh on episode one uh steven are you, you're taking the uh the stage directions would you like to uh yeah lead us in scene 12 exterior phrases ridge the big house Meanwhile, as per Jamie's instructions, John Gray has found a table laden with beverages of all kinds, bottles and tankards galore. Near it, keen to take advantage of the free-flowing alcohol, Fergus, John Quincy Myers, Isaiah Morton and others are currently playing a drinking game which involves drunkenly reciting tongue twisters. Master Lee is also playing. The game involves throwing around a leather hip flask like a ball at random. The person who catches it must recite a tongue twister without hesitating too long or making a mistake, thereby winning the approbation of the crowd or facing a forfeit. One of the shots of whiskey is lined up on the table. Once a tongue twister is repeated successfully, a new one must be proposed. It's Isaiah's turn. He's struggling to think of anything under the mounting pressure as John Quincy Myers times him with a small hourglass. Right now, prepare yourselves. <clears throat> Come on, Morton. Time waits for no man. <laughs> That's, that is a quality. I don't know where he's from. That is a quality. Well, I know where Carl's from, but that is a quality accent and one that if you were to do in the valleys, they would just think you are a native. Come on, Morton. Time waits for no man. Um, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. I mean, glorious. That was that was with a bit glorious. of that was with a bit of that was with a bit of pirate added pirate. <laughs> I think the pirate lifted it again. We have rehearsal. We had moments to look at it, moments to go through it, and I think just that little. Oh, I know. I'll bring in. I think it was actually the introduction of say we're on the Outlander boat has fed in <laughs> to uh, creating a more rounded Morton, which I think is fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. <laughs> uh, the onlookers cheer. Slanty. Relieved to have avoided the forfeit, Isaiah takes a zip from the flask, then throws it at Fergus, who panicking struggles. Here we go. Oh God. Yeah. Sit Prepare up, yourself, please. Stephen. This is going to be something Forgive quite me. wonderful. <laughs> uh, Peter Piper picked a mouth. Uh, <laughs> that was really bad. Loved every second. Move on, please, <laughs> quick as we can. John Quincy Miles is chanting. All right, here we go. Forfeit! Forfeit! Fergus is forced down a shot of whiskey. Fergus throws the flask to Marcelli, who catches it. Uh, okay, well, I'm having some thoughts about Marsley. I'm having some doubts about my Scottish accent and purple burglar alarm, so she's going to okay. be Australian, okay? Oh, my mind is a blank. Um, oh, I mean, is it? it? Doesn't it go, you've had, you, you'd have had more luck in French, my love. Yeah. Uh, she's just Australian. She gets it upside down. <laughs> I'm sorry. You've just decided, I've cut that. I've cut take those two, lines. They're two. not doing it for me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, 
You, I see you've worked with Australians before. I have worked with Australians before. My uh, Melbourne housewife accent there, I think is really going quite well. It was really quite good. Thank you. Okay, I, I'm going to try and imitate that. Go for it. You'd have more luck in French, my love. Yeah. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Beautiful. Sarah, Beautiful. cheers. She's got it right now. She flips the, Myers flips the sand glass. Okay. Try, wouldn't try another one. Quickly, Mistress Fraser, else you'll face a forfeit. Oh, my ma- mind is a blank. Um, she struggles. She plays the crowd. Oh, heavens. I, um, tis maybe a wee bit vulgar for a lady. May the Lord forgive me. There is an old pheasant and he's not too pleasant. And though I'm not a pheasant plucker, I'll be the, I'll be plucking pheasants till the pheasant plucking's done. Jesus, that's hard to say. This is the need of rehearsal. This is why you desperately need rehearsal. I'd, de- I'd definitely like be asking for another take on that one, please. Yeah. Can you imagine it if I had done it in a Scottish accent? <laughs> be here all night. It would just be like, ar, 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 ar. that's wonderful. That's full pirate. That's not Scottish. We're going. That's pirate. I've gone full pirate, <laughs> full bluebeard. Right. Oh, Fergus. Who's Fer- oh? You're Fergus. Back to David again. It's the David show. Who taught you that? My ma. I'm sure she'd be very proud. Fergus kisses Marcelie, and in her excitement at success, Marcelie takes a quick swig from the flask and throws it care- carelessly. It is caught by an unsuspecting and rather mortified John Gray. In spite of this, with his honour at stake, he tries to salvage his gentlemanly reputation as best he can. He just can't bring himself to try this particular tongue twister in public, especially sober. I'm a little bit nervous, Tim. I'm a little bit nervous because I have a confession. And I feel like now's a good time to tell you. Let's do it. I have always felt you might potentially make a better John Gray. That is outrageous. That is outrageous, and I will not hear that. <laughs> I am a little bit nervous that you're about to read it, and everyone's going to agree with me. But go ahead. <laughs> I'm prepared to lose it to you. I will bow down to you. Hey. Please don't make it too good. Uh, I'd like to keep my job. I'll try not to make it too good. I'll, I'll try. I'll try my best on that. Uh, <clears throat> right. And this is new. This is new information because most of this speech did not make. The cut due to no. due to what, Stephen? Actually, that's a, that's a question I've been dying to ask you. Due to momentum and uh, the humour was there, just with the one line that you did say, uh, and it was part of a montage. And anything that puts the brakes on too much was was nipped out. You see, I've always had a problem with momentum. I've always had a problem with momentum. They've been telling me that. The edit process is something to talk about later. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> this is what the public have missed. Here we go. So the the crowd goes silent. It's Lord John Gray, enigmatically receiving the gift of having to make a speech in public. Mm-hmm. Q. Um, I must admit, I'm doing a bit of Hugh Grant, but I think it's working. It's, um, it's really good. I, mu- I must admit, it's with deep regret, in fact, but I must tell you that I've well I've never um, had the pleasure of. Uh, I've I've never plucked a pheasant in all my life. <laughs> oh, there's still silence. Uh, People are looking at each still other. Still silent. <laughs> but some Shakespeare instead. Anyone? Bloody blameful blade. He bravely broached his boiling bloody breast. Yeah? In someone's dream. Nobody, <laughs> nobody on Fraser's Ridge has ever heard anything so beautiful, so crazy, <laughs> such poetry. 
he holds the room. They just don't know how to react. And then John Quincy Mars just says, Nah, forfeit. <laughs> My throat's dried out. Who's next? End scene. We move on. Glorious. I think a whole new take and a whole new... I mean, we could film that again almost. I think that is fabulous. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for that. Wow. Um, I was going to ask, as we were reading it, obviously you approached the idea. Obviously, things change throughout the process. When you first sit down and you read that scene, you'll have an idea of what, how you want people to be and where you want people to be. Then you'll go to the read-through. And does it change again? Does that directorial hat, does that go, actually, we need to cover it more this particular way? And then does it change again once you get on set with the limitations that are either of time or actor or space? So is it an ever-evolving thing? Is it a very organic thing? Or is it quite set when you do actually kind of go, right, the cameras then start rolling? It, it's, an, it's a number of things. It's a number of things. Um, the first thing to say about... Uh, read-throughs are so important the table read is so important it's so funny you say that because actors are thinking just the opposite half the time i, I know, I know. Up, we haven't slept the night before probably had a bit to drink and it's, oh, it's just a read-through we'll come in we'll read and it's, it's funny how you're coming at it the complete opposite direction but please i want to hear why is it so important uh, and I, I've got some gold dust for you, and, and, especially, and especially for younger younger cast members. The read through is the first time that everybody's in the room together. Often, at the read through, you will have, especially on block one, you will have executives of varying levels that won't attend all the other read throughs, um, but they are there. They've travelled up from. America from from London or whatever there, there's a good tier of of industry bigwigs who are listening in on this sometimes read-throughs are recorded and then sent to executives who can't be there my advice to younger cast members in the read-through and and the older cast members in the read-through but not if you already own your part but executives who hear interest and gold dust and energy in a read-through will commission more scenes with those characters. They will say, oh, she sounded really good. Get, make sure she's in another couple of scenes. Oh, wasn't, wasn't he funny? Oh, what, try and put him in a scene with those. Those things really happen. And especially for young people you know, on their first or second jobs or only got four scenes in a in an episode, they might be able to get five or six scenes. Or further on down the line, the writers, as a series is evolving and the episodes are being written as we go along, there'll be more weight given to people who are impressing. Um, and... And that's why that's why they're important. They're feeling the energy of somebody in the room, and they're they're looking at their their facial expressions, or they're they're looking at their process um, live. Mm. And and maybe that's a bit of theatre for you. Maybe that's where you know theatre training comes in as well. Yeah. But I, I yeah. there you know there are there are read throughs that have that have gone flat, and and sometimes sometimes people can not given as many scenes as they should be because it's a bit flat so i would always always say get involved and give it your best mm. shot 
I know from yeah. another perspective whether or not this is correct or not, and not ref- in any way refuting what you've said, Stephen. I think I've known some actors that like to hold back in a read through strategically because they don't want to give away too many elements of their performance. Um, they don't believe in committing to a read through because essentially that's not where the work is. Are people aware of that? Is that a strategy that you can understand, or is that something that you think you know just throw that out? That's not even going to work. Oh no, no, I, I I think that's a very very valid point, and I did preface my last uh, point by saying people who have you know of a certain status or a certain status within the production or already they can throw the energy that they want to throw into a, a read through and and that's sort of respected uh, and sometimes i think there's a politeness to it where you you don't want to be seen to be trying to own the room or mm-hmm. or you don't want to step on other people's performances especially when you haven't had those tonal conversations mm-hmm. uh, or the full sort of direction of where that character's going and how they interact with somebody who's been playing that character for five seasons so i i think i think you make a valid point too but i would say if you've got nothing to lose don't just read into the read into the script. Put your head up. Give it a little bit of spice. Give it a little bit of uh, character, uh, and don't read monotonically. Yeah, there we go. That's good. Good hot tip for any young actors listening to us. We have probably maybe a handful, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that handful when it comes to a read, goodness me, they're going to knock it out of the park. I mean, I've had friends of mine. I mean, this is primarily in uh, their experience has been primarily in comedy which is very different to how, how it works on big comedy series, where this one friend of mine, uh, it was um, uh, a three-hander. It was him and two women, and they live in a flat. And this was in America somewhere. And they went in for the first read, and one of the women couldn't make it because of, for some other reason. So they got somebody else to read in for the first read. They read the first read, all very funny, laughing. Ha-ha, well, we're going to go away, do some rewrites, come back, we'll have another read. So they go away about four or five days later, come back. The girl that couldn't make it has been sacked. And the girl that read in has right. now got the part. Ooh. So they then read it again with this new lineup. So two of the originals and a, a new one. They say, great, fantastic. It's getting closer to filming. They then go on. They then go off. They then come back for the first rehearsal. The other woman's been sacked and somebody else has now been brought in. It was absolutely wow. so he was the only one that remained <laughs> through just three read throughs. So it goes almost back to what you're saying is. Give it a bit of oomph. Give it a little bit because you you do never know. You do never know. And I've been in, in, in experiences as well where I've had a, had a small part, as a young actor, had a small part in something, gave it a bit of welly and ended up with, with two more scenes. There are no small parts, Tim. There are no small parts. There are no small parts. <laughs> Just is, small actors, right? Well, which we all know to be a lie. Um, <laughs> there are small parts. People that come in and say, you rang. Or dinners on the table. Stephen might disagree. There was that was a very very good John Tarsi impression there. You know we wouldn't want to call his part Isaiah Moore. Did it, do you know what? I didn't even I didn't even know that was a line. That's how English I am. I've gone straight for <laughs> the my lot is on the telephone or dinner is served. That's how English I am. That's how English I am. I wanted to ask you a couple of things about your process and what it means to be a director. And I also am kind of interested in how you got to be a director because you've, as I understand, you've had a bit of a long and winding path to come into the career that you've had. You've, at one time or another, you were an actor, an animator, a stage manager, 
production runner, an assistant director, and now finally a director. And I'm, I'm wondering in the midst of all those jobs, was directing always the destination or was there a time that you'd wished you'd chosen something else to do? Um, I knew that I wanted to direct from an early age and as definitely from making small animations um, as a teenager, that was something that inspired me to want to get into behind the camera. Um, I came from a family who worked in the theatre and so I was around actors and acting and backstage quite a lot. Um, so there were lots of pieces in place that um, that inspired me, and lots of people that inspired me. Um, but it was a, it was a long journey, and and you know I left school at eighteen and had two years off before doing a degree, and was running around making tea for two years, and then did a degree in film and television, got a graduation film, thought I would come out of. Uh, university uh, and make films and be a director and didn't and was part of the you know several assistant directing teams there was a third assistant director then a second assistant director then a first assistant director of about 10 years and I got involved in a wonderful career that took me around the world on some really interesting movies um, and learned from some really really great directors you know Gillis McKinnon Tom Hooper, um, uh, David Yates. You know, one of the last things I first AD'd was um, State of Play, which David Yates directed, which was a phenomenal sort of BAFTA award-winning TV thriller. And he inspired me to, hey, get out there, you know, start start directing. And I, I started getting some days where I could be the second unit director on various things and that gave me a reel and then the BBC gave me a job as a director on a children's TV drama and and I made steps onwards from there and you know everybody has mentors and supporters in their lives and and David Yates was one of those people and I two years after I started directing he got the Harry Potter Mm. job and wanted to bring his own team in and I had just done a load of sort of effects work as a director and I was in the right place at the right time and became his second unit director um, on the the last four Potters and the Fantastic Beasts which is a job that I still do I I still go back and forth between a a television directing career and, and, and supporting him as his second unit director on various movies um, I, I did think I'd be directing at about 29 years old, and it ended up at about 37 years old. Um, but it, it was a, you know, it was a. The assistant directing thing was good because you're able to get close to how productions work. You get close to the cast. You get close to storytelling techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, so you use that time to really learn and hone your skills. I mean, it sounds yeah. like you started off as the uh, the coffee boy or the, the tea boy, to use the English parlance, and then worked your way up from, from there as a runner. And then through persistence, you eventually got the break that you wanted to be a director. I, I wanted to know what you thought are the qualities of a good director and how did you learn them? You, you mentioned you had a few mentors. What about them made them a good director? I mean, I have my own ideas what makes a good director. Tim, you probably have yours, probably one that always says you're great, you're doing really good work. They're the best They're the best ones. Yeah. They're comfortably <laughs> the best ones. Well, for me, a really good director would be someone who allows you space, mm-hmm. which is always difficult on a big production. And one of the things 
that I felt that you did, Stephen, was allow that space. There's a structure, but there is space within it to create and to breathe as a character and to kind of have ideas. Yeah, I, I, and yeah. it brings us onto the onto the earlier thread. So we've had the, we've had the read through, we've rehearsed, mm. and then we've had this wonderful rehearsal. We had what we had about forty minutes, didn't we, David, in 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 the rehearsal room to do this wonderful drinking game scene, and you could just tell that it was going to be fun. And what we worked out there was the the physical rules of the game and i had an idea because i only had 100 i only had 120 extras or whatever that's that's right. a large number of people and it was great but mm. i needed i needed to, to create a sort of naughty corner of the of the wedding mm -hmm. this is a you know this is not where everybody's dancing this is this is a slightly more rough and ready area so i i asked the art department for three carts and and a sort of created a triangle of carts. So I created my own little arena and knew that the the action that we'd rehearsed would fit in that arena. And then we could dress it with the supporting artists and they could be on different levels and it could be quite, you know, gladiatorial almost. Um, and that was the vision that the rehearsal gave me. Um, and then you, you get to the set. So you have this vision. So every day... If you're prepared as a director, you have to have a plan that will get you, with nobody else's input, you have to have a plan that will get you through the day. That's 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 your sort of parachute. That that's that's your safety. But what you do want is that journey to be corrupted, uh, to take a different turn by everybody else's creativity. Oh, I, I definitely tried to corrupt your vision there. If I remember correctly, I, I did balk at some of your suggestions. I think for me, it was a little bit, it was a little tricky for me. I, I don't think I had the same sense of excitement going into it because I thought, to be honest, it was a bit of a character challenge for me. There are many reasons why I thought maybe John Gray, in the very first instance, why is he at the wedding? He's not just on the book. Those things that are usually are there for you in the script or in the book, sorry, don't his book to, to kind of pad out your your research there was no justification there and i like that kind of justification and then to sort of be fraternizing with the rabble and all that kind of stuff i had my own as an actor sense of how i wanted it to work and my excitement there was not synergistic with yours because obviously i had my own ideas and i think i remember at one point one disagreement we had or one point of discussion let's say let's be diplomatic we didn't uh get into any fights or anything. <laughs> i remember we had a great time um but uh, it was whether or not John Gray was going to drink out of the thing and whether he would allow John Quincy Mays to actually tip it in his mouth, to which I wasn't really sure because to maintain the integrity of the character, maintain his high status, that was something I really challenged you on. And um, you must be getting that at all points of the day, people having differing opinions about how to do things. You use this term ringmaster. And so I wanted to see if you could unpack that a bit. How much power are you actually of ownership of your vision do you actually have? And how open are you to the fluidity and the spontaneity of filmmaking? Yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think that's, a, you know, having a plan that will get you through the day, if nothing else goes wrong, is a starting point. But it's also wanting to create a safe space, a creative space for everybody to uh, have a creative involvement. And there's nothing better than 
looking forward to cast members coming on set going, oh, I can't wait to see what's in the head about this because you probably haven't rehearsed it and you never have re time to rehearse you know, much stuff on a TV show of this sort of schedule. Well, sometimes we don't even know what we're supposed to do in the scene. I don't know if you agree with me, Tim. We defer a lot of our responsibility no. to a director to come up with our choices. And I think as you get better and more confident in your craft and more confident in your character, you start to make those choices and you can start having a bit more of an active disagreement or discussion with the director. But I think sometimes actors like to defer responsibility to the director to tell them what to do. Yeah, I, I, I mean, part of the, uh, part of the, the process of pre-production is to go through back and forth to the locations or to the sets, work out uh, a way that the scene will work um, and your key moments, you know, that key moment of, of Claire looking out of the window in silhouette, you know, even if it's not written, that's something you write in your script and going, that's a really good image. I need to sell that to Katrina when she comes onto the set. Um, and maybe it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a number of bullet points without uh, being over-prescriptive on a performance, but it's mm -hmm. a number of, God, this, you know, we're here today at this time because the sun's going to set over there mm -hmm. and we're, we're shooting the scene this way for the beautiful backlight and silhouette. Um, and these are the choices I've had to make in advance. Uh, and they're all good, wonderful, creative choices. And then we can fill in the detail with with performance beats and interpretation and and personality and and character beats. Um, so you know, every day you have to almost sell a vision to to a cast um, and. Create an atmosphere where where you're not you're never bullying a performance or bullying a, a methodology to a scene uh, where you're you're finding it together. But for me, that you have to be honest. The moment you're not honest to very very intelligent, well-read cast members, uh, you can get yourself into trouble. And you say, "Look, I'm here. That's going to be beautiful. That's a key image to the scene." You know, and I suppose that requires a bit of code switching and being able to, to speak different languages. Do you find it, you know, you're more adept at speaking the language of different departments? Like, is it easier to talk to the camera department or is it easier to talk to actors? Like, so I've known that some directors are very kind of nervous about talking to actors because, I don't know, sometimes we can be a bit precious. I don't know about you, Tim. Mm. I can be a bit precious about my performance sometimes. Mm. I remember one time when I was a young actor, there was one particular scene that was written uh, I was in the third season. I was quite attached to my character and the script um, asked for my character to break down and cry. And I was just, I, I'd come to a point with this character that I was just so tired of playing that kind of, that beat and I didn't agree with it in the script. And um, I was trying to fight the, I was a bit of a brat to the, the director, uh, sorry, the, the writer. And I said, um, it needs to be rewritten um, because this is just not right. And uh, I was trying to recruit the director to my point of view, and uh, uh, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't bite, which actually taught me a very good lesson. Um, his name is Ian Barry. Um, he's a very experienced director. He pushed back, and when I said to him, "My character's not going to do that," um, he said, "Well, think about this. Your character can do anything. 
your character can literally do anything. And you're right now putting the parameters on what he can and can't do. And so he had to sell to me that this scene is, and, and at the end of the day, I had to play the scene as written. Um, and uh, I learned to respect that relationship. He agreed with me that it probably wasn't the right thing for the character, but at the end of the day, he had to make the captain's call. And he also had a vision of how the entire episode had to work. And it really taught me to open up my mind to possibility and also how to defer to a hierarchy and how director obviously has to, you know, make uh, those kind of calls all the time, be the, be the umpire. Yeah, well, because obviously I do a lot of comedy and comedy is so subjective. It's sometimes what you find funny, other people don't find funny. Or there are certain rhythms within within a scene that don't work. I can remember having a very uh, grown-up conversation with Harry Enfield once about where my trousers should fall down. And you do get to a point <laughs> when you're a man of a certain age and you kind of think, I really shouldn't be sat here discussing, well, is it funnier to walk straight in and my trousers fall down? Or shall it be the, the tension of the scene of his trousers are going to fall down, but when? And then when you leave, your trousers fall down. We had at least a 20-minute, half-an-hour discussion on that. Um, but that was very interesting then to kind of have the third party look at the scope because as an actor you see i well sometimes you see it in isolation you kind of see your bit as this is my bit and we're going to do this bit whereas the director has the view of the whole piece the feel of the whole piece how the whole piece is going to sound how it, uh, the mood the feel and everything about it so i think on those occasions that one does have to defer but i was going to ask you Stephen. You have ideas, you have these little totems throughout a scene that you're making. Kind of, we'll hit this, this is a good image, this is a good moment, and this is a good moment. Have there been times where that has changed? Where actually you've gone, do you know what? That's actually a better idea. Mm. We should do that. Oh, all, all, all the time, all the time. From, mm. from the way that uh, Jocasta grabbed hold of Roger's hand at Jocasta's tent, you know, it's not in the script. It's, it, but it's a fundamentally key moment within that scene. It's, it's her saying, no, listen to me, I'm the boss. And, and it's beautiful little things like that. Um, going back to the drinking game, it, you know, David and I you know, did have a moment where I was, I was wrongly trying to encourage uh, David to have drunken a little bit more than he thought his character would have, or at least showing it. Um, and the enigmatic way in which David resolved that conversation and played to played the very straight way in which Lord John makes his Shakespeare declaration and gets the humour of it um, was a way in which we could agree and I think it worked beautifully and and that's that's me going well you know we're in series five of this and you've been around for most of those series and uh yeah I'll... I think it comes down to trust doesn't it you want to trust that you both have invested in this thing in, in equal measure and you both have an understanding of the character I think sometimes actors get a little bit anxious that the director doesn't understand your character as well as you do or no one understands the character as well as you get very possessive. So I think you have to have a degree of trust and, and just being able to open up those possibilities. Like I said, that the way that you see things, as Tim also said, 
um, can be a bit myopic. And what we really all want to know, Tim, is did you come in with your pants up or down? <laughs> Thank you for bringing it back to this. Uh, we we actually thought it was funnier to uh, have the uh, the tension of the scene, knowing it's going to happen, is you don't give away the joke too early. You hold back, you hold back. So, so the, the audience know, it's like with a catchphrase. It's like uh, with, uh, say, like a, a classic catchphrase of I don't believe it or something like that. You know it's coming. You know the character's going to say it. But it's how and when they say it. It's half the enjoyment. That, that particular character, of, I don't believe it. You kind of think, is he going to say it to this? or is he? But you know it's coming. But it's all to do with the timing and where, where you place it and how you build it. I'm stuck, Tim. I, I have this image of you with your pants down and I can't <laughs> um, I, I, everything you just said has just gone over my head there's another really good example in the drinking game oh yes um so the way in which the drinking game is cut is is mm. that um it starts in the episode with uh paul donnelly who plays ronnie sinclair walking out uh so it's the end of the scene first. He walks out and uh, John Quincy Myers says, oh, my mouth's dry. Who's, who's next? And he walks yeah. out and he's, Ronnie says, I sleep the shit. I sleep the shit. Yeah. That wasn't in the script. That wasn't was, in the script. Not, was not in the script. And, and there's a technique that I learned from uh, Werner Herzog. Clang. Ooh, Herzog. Uh, Clang. <laughs> um, <laughs> who says, who says to aspiring directors whenever you think you're going to say cut say it five seconds later at least and th this can be incredibly annoying to some cast members but mm -hmm. uh, but you you can get a system where people know that you're not going to say cut immediately and some people can just play, play to the camera and make a silly face but other people will go to us strange place and the whole ronnie sinclair ad lib that wasn't in the script that that now heads the start of that scene they they play the end of the scene first in the cut was me not saying cut and going well i love love this energy what's gonna happen now and yeah. and kyle reese keeps going as john quincy myers go right ronnie sinclair you're next and paul donnelly yeah <laughs> so we really are a directing credit here to Werner herzog which i'm very happy about oh. um, five seconds after you cut, I, just, I really wanted to get my impression in there. <laughs> it was good. I could say, I could, I could feel the energy of oh, I could do my Herzog at last. I'm sorry, I, 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 my Herzog. I was really listening, and I, I also wanted. There's something else I've, I've been really wanting to ask you, Stephen. Is, is this question of auteurship, um, or the auteur theory? It's something that we all often attribute to film directors, but it's. I'm wondering how much it's applicable to a TV director because, you know, like when we think of uh, directors, I think it's a common misconception amongst people who don't really understand TV or just don't understand the, the job and function of director. They think, oh, director, I know someone like uh, Kubrick. He loves wide lenses and classical music and or Terrence Malick and he gets obsessed with a flower petal or something like that. Um, uh I was wondering what kind of ownership you feel over the episodes you direct. I mean, so much of it seems to be taken away from you by the showrunner or the millions of decisions that you've had to make before the have been made for you before the cameras even started rolling. Yeah, um, there, there is, uh, yeah, it is a huge 
part of the process is to learn to deal with what your responsibilities are and what voice you have. And it's to know the voice that you have and know how to use it. And, and every decision you make on set hopefully expresses part of your personality and, and, and is all about being one of the authors on a show like this. Um, you know, you are not the author. I mean, I started on block one of series five of Outlander and the big house is already built. Nobody's talked to me about what the big house looks like or... Uh, you didn't even cast what, me. You may not have chosen me as Lord John. You might have chosen Tim. I think it's all evidence by <laughs> his uh, He's clearly the better choice. It's self-evident. It's self-evident from that read. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, a really, it's a really good point. Uh, I don't think I'd be doing it if I didn't feel that I was expressing myself. But at the same time, I know that I'm a company player. Without doubt, I'm a company player, and I shoot a lot of footage, and I shoot quite a lot of angles mm -hmm. because because I know on these jobs they go into post production, and there's a lot of re-engineering of scenes and orders and and timelines, and uh, if you can provide them with uh, the building blocks to do what they need to do to keep the story running in the direction they want to, uh, then that's part of your job. Um, mm -hmm. And none of us should feel bad about that. I, 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 I've, been, I've been in an edit suite um, and I've heard screams from other edit suites you know, on various shows when they haven't got the footage to change the dialogue or uh or get out of the scene quicker or uh adjust a performance and on, on these shows you need all of those things with you know without a doubt i was thinking it was very similar to the job of an actor i mean we we don't have any control over the edit uh and a lot of the time what we get out of the creative process is just going in there with the best intent to put forth as many choices as possible but no, at the end of the day, we are the servant of a master and that person will then have their input onto the show, which is the editor. And so I'm, I, I am very fascinated about what you're talking about with the editing process. And I'm um, particularly as it relates to a director, because, you know, you probably never want an actor in the editing studio. I know if, if the uh, editing suite, I, I know if, if I had the cut, the final cut, it'd probably be just the Lord John show. Uh, yeah. Not uh, and if Tim had it, it'd probably be the try-on show. Absolutely, it'd be it'd be it'd, it'd be walking past in every scene, whether or not it was even even there. Uh, it'd already gone to New so, York and so then come back and ask for a reshoot as well. You know, asking for <laughs> all the rewrites. So, so let, let's go back to the wedding night. So, mm -hmm. um, the the wedding night, I identified that in pre-production. And I said, hey, look, there's so much going on here. We could have a rewrite and we could start cutting between all of the, the three couple stories, the drinking game, the dancing game, the other people at the party. Um, and I, I suggested that in, in, in pre-production. And they said, no, keep it as, as it is. But, hey, if you can get us the footage, footage to get us in and out of there, um, you know, we could see that that might be a way to go. And in post-production on Outlander, which is similar to very 
many other American shows, I, as the director, I finish the shoot, I go straight into five days of post-production per, per episode. So I only have five days to, wow. to, to, to deliver a director's cut. And that director's cut is where you show your intentions. In a, in a, in a perfect world, how many days would you want in an edit suite? Well, there there are there are different models of 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 building a show. This American model, where you only have five days, gets you onto another job very quickly. On Paul Dark, uh, I you're much more the sort of in charge of post production director, and I had between twelve and sixteen weeks of post production, where you're responsible to do all the ADR, all the music or the effects, and you're there right the way through to virtually virtually delivery. Um, but that can take a that can take almost a year of your life with the pre-production and and the, the shooting of it. And and that's a, it's it's a lovely process. It's fantastic. But there's something here where you you shoot, you edit, and you 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 move on. Um, but those five days are difficult to deliver everything that you wanted to deliver. You deliver a, a series of ideas about your intentions and about how things could be restructured or, you know, playing to the what you see the positives are. Mm-hmm. Um, and with regards to episode one of series five of Outlander, the assembly that I received on my first day of the edit was one hour and 29 minutes long. Wow. So, so a movie, basically a movie. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So in my five days, I had to get the scenes working in a certain way, and I had to cut a load of stuff. But I only delivered my director's cut at one hour, 12, one hour, 13. And I hinted mm-hmm. at the intercutting of all the love stories. Mm-hmm. Then it went off to LA and to the showrunner and the, the the post-production facility in LA and they they jumped on that and they they looked at the tone of episode one and right in the middle of the wedding night there was a much darker, longer scene between Roger and Brianna in their hut before they make love. Um asking, you know, taking Brianna to a much darker place where it was much difficult to get her back from. So a lot of that was was cut and it was kept lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I think for the, for the good of the episode, because she's got such a long journey to go with all of that, and she was, you know, it was hard to, to oscillate between getting married and suffering huge PTSD all in one night and then getting getting alone with her husband and then suffering again and then getting into bed. And, um, and I thought it, yeah. And I thought, I thought it was a, you know, what, what they delivered from LA and what the showrunner delivered was a a great celebration of the wedding with hints of those bits of darkness, but it was a much, it was a much more complicated episode on the, on the page. Yeah, and I'd be interested. I mean, there's obviously a, uh, some compromises you've had to make for for um, Brianna's storyline, but the, at the end, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's about the um, the episode in its entirety and things like you're talking about tone, 
and uh, and and momentum, um, momentum, which I'm very much aware of, and uh, probably the reason why all my stuff got cut. And I'm not mad about it. I'm not bitter. <laughs> Barely brought it up at all. Barely brought it up at all. <laughs> um, uh, tone is tone is an interesting word because um, uh, what you on Outlander and and other American shows, you arrive, you have a you've read the script for a day, you made a load of notes. You have a page turn with all the departments where where you go right. We got five weeks ahead of us, and I'm looking at this is really interesting. Oh, I'd like to know how that works. Can we design that? I need four of those. I need forty of those soldiers. Uh, just as for starters, that's on day two of your prep, and then after that, after that page turn with the the crew, you go into the showrunner's office. And you sit down with the showrunner and the producer writer who's going to be on set with you. And maybe you're on a call to L.A. as well. And you have a pre-tone meeting. And a pre-tone meeting is them commissioning you to go, right, we've all read the script. This is what we want you to focus on go and go and find that go and find that that's going to be tricky report back to us in a couple of days about how that's going to work and do you think that'll work um uh we love the way these two actors are working together um that's a really tricky scene so you know make sure you get some rehearsal time for that and um and it's a sort of here you go my son you got five weeks, sort it out, and, and and you're given four or five weeks of pre-production, uh, and you're developing the you're developing the script with them all the time, and then you come back after after the read through, and you come back, and then you have the tone meeting. Yeah. My last tone meeting on episodes seven and eight started at midday, um, and we were still on the phone to LA at midnight. Uh, just wow. yeah, it was proper proper midnight pizzas. Jeez. Um, and, and that tone meeting just before you start shooting is you saying, you pitching the, pitching your vision with everything mm. that you've discussed with them saying, this is how it's going to look. They're going to go from A to B to C. We're going to need some establishers there. Uh, this scene still isn't working. I've rehearsed this. I've put a bed in the rehearsal room and we've rehearsed it on a bed and, can we have a rewrite? They will also be pitching in to you as the director any cast members' notes or anything they think is applicable. They're very discreet, but they will say, oh, we've had some notes in from here and we're, we're looking at uh, uh, these 15 pages of David Berry's notes. Wow. <laughs> Probably more like twenty. Come on, <laughs> but, but we're I'm very detailed and discreet. <laughs> yeah, but but no, I, you know they declare to you certain things, and they say we're we're still looking at that, and I say can we rewrite that, and they say no, okay, can we can we shuffle that around, and uh, what if this happened, and what if that happened. Um, and then literally 24 hours later, you're on the floor directing. Um, and um, you know, one of the difficult parts of that commission is it is an unwritten rule that certain things that you've agreed 
in that meeting, certain key things for the producers and the creators of the show, some of the key things you sort of sign in that meeting is stuff that you will need to fight for on set with the writer-producer who's on set. And so, you know, sometimes you are fighting for stuff that you 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 have to have been told uh, you know stuff that yeah. is important to other people the stuff that's not naturally important to you you know the showrunner the showrunner director relationship is is a key thing and it's a relationship uh, you know i think one of the skills of of directing is there are so many people that are asking you questions and and wanting answers from you um, and you wanting answers from them, you have to make relationships work. And and uh, Matthew B. Roberts, uh, I ad- uh, adore, and you know he's there with such a passionate, uh, connected vision to the series. Um, and you know he he has to answer to so many people has to answer to the network to the creator to the studio to the cast well, i think we all have to have a love for this and especially the man who's is captaining it i think no one would be in this uh, if they didn't love it and i think that love translates onto the screen and and of course the fan base and i think the fans are going to really benefit from uh your uh your insights uh today Stephen. and i i want for one hope that my parents have benefited from this discussion and now understand what a director is uh, because until very recently they've been trying to get me to uh, course correct my career telling me that uh, I have to be a director because the director is the guy that gets to uh, make all the shots uh, drives the Mercedes-Benz and uh, gets the big bucks mom and dad please understand (laughs) none of those things (laughs) maybe I'm not doing so bad it's okay if I'm an actor I don't know if they ever accept that yes absolutely uh, well look Stephen thank you so much I can certainly say that from the episodes that we did together um also i think you mentioned episodes seven and eight were just uh just such a joy to work on big scale episodes as well in order to kind of get the intimacies and emotion in that and that's uh, that's testament to you as a director having to kind of orchestrate these enormous palettes Absolutely. of people and uh opinions and all of this to create those um those episodes so certainly from my point of view i want to say you know thank you for such an enjoyable experience doing those um, doing those incredible scenes. The season finale, you got the opener and you got the, the big scene with Tim Downey. I mean, these are, these are the things that any director wants. Any exactly. Director wants. And, uh... that's, that's the holy trinity right there. Openers, enders, Downey. <laughs> you know, uh, perfect. Uh, very, uh, very fond memories. And thank you very much. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Stephen, thank you so much for your time uh, and for coming on our show this evening. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm now going to leave it, by the way, uh, five seconds at least before shouting cuts. I'm very, uh, very good. <laughs> uh, hello and welcome to Listener Mail, the part of the show where we have uh, thumbed through our inbox and uh, seen some tasty tidbits that, uh, that you've left us. We have a wonderful one here. Yeah, oh, yes. We have a wonderful oh, yeah. one here from uh, Steve in Sydney. You're, uh, you're neck of the woods. Oh, hi, he Steve. would like to know. G'day. Uh, hi, Steve. Good day. Mm-hmm. Um, he would like to know what aquatic mammal uh, we we would be. Well, that's very interesting, uh, Steve. I myself would be, uh, I think, the manatee, uh, mm-hmm. the sea cow, as they say, um, trawling the ocean depths, uh, just kind of grubbing along with my nose. I think that would be that'd be fabulous and very good natured. 
as well. How funny. How funny, Tim. I, I, I would have to say the same thing, although we would call it the dugong here. But, uh, we like to pick funny names for our, for our cities and our creatures. So um, thank you, Steve, from it says uh, Sydney Aquatic Centre. Thank you very much for that question. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to Outcasts. Please remember to rate, subscribe and leave a review as it all helps. Follow us on our Instagram page at outcast.podcast for all the latest updates. Or you can send us an email at outcastspodcastshow at gmail.com. Every week, we shall select a question from one of our listeners to answer on the show. The theme music is composed by Kieran Ledwidge. All views and opinions expressed on the show are our own and have no affiliation with the series of books written by Diana Gabaldon or the Sony Stars television show Outlander. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Although I did have a ham sandwich earlier. So. See you next time. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 